You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Simon. Pop quiz, listeners. A quick pop quiz for you. Out of the three people who have just introduced themselves, one of us, halfway through first run Doctor Who, that we're all sitting watching nicely and quietly so that we could talk about it afterwards, halfway through, one of us got out of his chair and without bothering to pause the video, walked across to the cabinet, pulled out a canister of polish, then proceeded to walk up to the telly and polish the screen. Now, which one of the three of us was that? It was a bloody irritating blemish. I thought I'd get into trouble if I paused it. Be like cutting the umbilical cord. Why? Well, I don't know. Sensitive types, you dot two fans. <laughs> oh my god, you had Lee well, talking all over something, it. Something had happened, right? I shifted the telly around the room. At some point during the day, I think one of my children must have had a handful of yogurt that went on the screen. Lee, uh, could you actually see anything on the screen? I could. I could see all the lights because he's moved the television, so all the lights are on oh, the you screen. Reflections now. of lights. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was obviously could... in the best position in the oh, room. You must have been because it was really. I didn't see anything. I couldn't see lights. I couldn't see fingerprints. I couldn't see yogurt. No. I couldn't see Missy's face at one point. That's how bad that. Splendid. I thought it was spoiling it for everyone. I do apologise. If <laughs> I, I thought you were fine, it was only <laughs> spoiling it for you, Simon. And Lee and I really don't care. It was amusing to watch. <laughs> Oh, you're both looking at each other. No, faces. I couldn't see Lee because he had his back to me. Oh. You, you were actually scrubbing Clara's face at one point, which just made me laugh. I was just thinking ahead to the podcast a... and how I was going to introduce the fact that you'd polished the screen halfway through. Well. <clears throat> Gentlemen, first of all, I hope JR didn't introduce this in his usual way by saying, we've had an email from Doc Whom... Drawing out the word whom in that weary, oh, how tiresome this is going to be way. I have just spent 90 minutes listening to you trashing canine and company, and I have only one question. Whatever happened to the blue box mantra, nobody sets out to write a bad story? You know who I blame? That's Simon. Every time he appears on the podcast alone with JR, he always bullies poor JR into being negative. <laughs> In the immortal words of Sharak Jeers, poo, wee, bum, willy. Keep up the good work. You continue to match the standards that you set yourself. Doc whom? I noticed he didn't say good standards. We can take that as red. You trashed Canine <clears throat> Company without me. Actually, we didn't trash it. I don't think we did. I think we truly extracted what was good about it, how it could have been better. Right. There might have been different ways of doing it. I thought that was... It is quite poor, we but we both said it's poor but entertaining, and we enjoyed it. It's nostalgic more than anything for me. <clears throat> he says, Doc Hoom says, whatever happened to the blue box mantra, nobody sets out to write a bad story. That's only half the mantra. The entire mantra is, nobody sets out to write a bad story, 
Sometimes it just happens that way. <laughs> and that's what happened with K9 and Company. And I thought we went into that in quite a lot of detail, you know, explaining just how it had turned out bad when obviously nobody involved with it had intended for that to be the case. Mm-hmm. Do you know why it actually was, it was more a case of missing the brief, wasn't it? I think more than anything. Well, we did this two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Or a week ago, actually, as far as the podcast feed is concerned. Oh, we don't need to go over that again, unless did, Lee's got anything to add. Did you give it a score? Yeah, you've listened to the podcast, so you know what scores we gave it. I don't listen to the podcast, you know that. <sighs> I'm wearing my glasses, Lee, you're looming right <laughs> up on me. You should listen to you. It's a bit like smelling your own farts. No, it's not. I don't want to... If he's not on an episode what? of the Blue Box podcast... It's like smelling the fast, then he should... Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, if he's not on an episode of the Blue Box podcast, he needs to listen to that episode before we reconvene so that he can join in the conversation about it. I know. What would you like me to say? Give a canine and company a score. How long is it since you you've seen 10? it? Do you How long is it since you've seen it, first of all? Uh, about 15 years. Sort of... Video or BBC Sky V Sky Cable? I don't know what it was, but I saw it on something. BBC V Sky Cable. Yeah, <laughs> four out of ten. Well, that was midway between the two of us, really. Mm. I give it a six. He gave it a three. And the four is literally just for nostalgia. It was actually quite and the theme tune. Oh, and the Happy Christmas song at the end. It was actually quite entertaining. We both enjoyed it. Mm. We'd have enjoyed it more if three of us been here and we'd have had a party like we were intending to do, but one of us didn't turn up, did they? <laughs> we hats and everything. <clears throat> okay. Stephen Moffat. Okay. Russell T. Davis had this thing with Doctor Who where he would have the companions' families. But what he'd do is he'd tell sci-fi stories that had the companions' families in them. Stephen Moffat, on the other hand, doesn't have the companions' families. So, from the outside, it looks, on the surface of it, like Stephen Moffat is telling a more sci-fi version of Doctor Who. But what we've just watched, and none of us went to the Cardiff thing, so none of us have seen the second episode, none of us knows where it's going. What we've just watched is a domestic drama with a bloody great dash of Star Wars thrown in for good measure. We've seen an old man about to die gathering his oldest and dearest around him before he goes. Mm. It doesn't get a lot more domestic than that. Is that a shape of things to come? No, I don't know. I'm just saying for a... When you sit down and say, right, and this is his fifth one, when you sit down and say, right, I've got a new series to write, And you have to come up with a shape for that series, right? You have to, regardless of whether you're writing interconnected stories that form an arc or not, you have to have something to start the series that's going to draw people in and make them sit and want to stay with it, even if the stories don't interconnect. You've got, and this is much more than just the stuff that you throw into the trailer. The stuff that you throw into the trailer is the dazzle. And that's the stuff that makes people say, oh, this looks exciting. But when people actually sit down to watch it, it doesn't matter how much dazzle it's got. If it's got no substance, people are just going to get bored and switch off. And when I say switch off, I don't mean switch off the tellies. I mean switch off their brains. But if you give people something that will absorb their attention, 
they'll stick with it. And the best way to absorb people's attention is by giving them something that even subconsciously, because probably most of the 8 million people, whatever it is, watching that episode, aren't sitting there thinking, oh, this is just like when Grandad died and we all went to visit him on his deathbed. Mm. Nobody's sitting there at home thinking that. Well, I say nobody, I did. But you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> people aren't sitting there consciously thinking that. But what they are doing is watching a story that is not just about the grandfather on his deathbed gathering his oldest, dearest friends around him. And when I say friends, I use that term advisedly, obviously. But they're also watching the start of that grandfather's life. And effectively what Stephen Moffat has done, just in that 45-minute-odd episode, is write the first chapter of a of one of these books like Casanova the Russell T Davis version yeah. where he had the old Casanova mm. with Rose Byrne wasn't it telling her the story of his life mm. and going back to his younger days to sh- to show how you get from A to B and what all the zigs and the zags are in between <laughs> and what we're watching is kind of a simplified version of that anyway the question I suppose should be Simon did you enjoy it yes Okay, Lee, did you enjoy it? I did. Okay, would either of you like to expand on that in any way? Um, I think it's a second watch thing, big style, because I've found myself really getting sucked into certain set pieces, like the bit between Missy and Clara. And the bit with the yoghurt? Somebody just gave me a filter It was distracting. Um, But I, I felt I was missing bits. Every now and again, not because I was wiping the screen, but because Lee was talking. No, <laughs> I, didn't I, didn't talking. Much, did I? I did a lot of laughing. I thought it was very funny. Mm. I thought it was very funny, and I thought it was incredibly brave. Again, yet again, that uh, for all the criticism that he's always doing the same thing, blah blah blah. Yawn. Uh, Stephen Moffat continues to surprise me. He surprises time. you by doing. Actually, he surprises you by doing the same thing in Mm. unexpected ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, in certain ways, was almost a remake of some of the ideas from A Good Man Goes to War. Mm -hmm. You know, gathering people around, the doctor's missing, and then he turns up (sighs) in the most spectacular of fashions. He seems to think he's going to die as well. Yeah, exactly. That's another thing. Mm. I mean... Uh, another thing about when you sit down to write a season-long story, and whether that's a story that actually all fits together or a series of short stories or whatever, you have to... Right, this is one of the common complaints about Stephen Moffat, is that it's always, oh, why is it such a big drama? Why can't it just be little stories? And the fact is, once you get past the opening story, and before you get to the last story, you do get a bunch of little stories. So you get the best of both worlds. But Stephen Moffat has decided, unlike when Russell T. Davis did it, where he would always start with something frivolous, mm. Stephen Moffat, from The Impossible Astronaut on, has kind of said, no, let's throw that in the other direction and start with something that feels like a finale. Mm. So mm. you've basically got a finale at the start and a finale at the end. and that, And what that means is... You have to not just find that story, that domestic drama, 
whatever it is that absorbs the attention of the viewer but you also have to do it in a way that says right here we are doing something important mm -hmm. and the end of the doctor's life and we all know it's not the end of his life and deep down inside all the characters on the screen know it's probably not the end of his life as well no you definitely get a sense there's a premiere it's the first in the new series. Mm. Bang! Smacking the face. The thing about the opening more sense in some respects. The thing about the opening story is, unlike the stories in the middle, the stories in the middle can just be stories in the middle. But the story at the start has to feel like it's the only story. It has to feel like a movie mm. in its own right. Mm. You know, because if you don't give people that impression with the first one what's going to cause them to stick around for the rest of them? Mm. You know, to a certain extent, if people don't feel fulfilled by that first story, yeah. that's, you know, I'm not saying it would drive them away, but what I'm saying is if they don't feel fulfilled by the first one, they won't feel as engaged with the rest. It's also a way story-wise of kind of changing gear to allow the series to have a different flavour to it by changing, you know, changing, changing the dynamic. Yeah, so the Doctor is immediately far more... He's closer, he's hugging, he's doing all these sort of things. He's got to the point where he's resolved a lot of things in his head. So we've gone past that stage where the Doctor's trying to find himself. You've got the Doctor... And yet you've still got, like, the same person. Yeah, yeah. With the same sort of idiosyncrasies. Mm -hmm. But it's somebody who's comfortable with his idiosyncrasies yeah. rather than having them because he doesn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. But I mean, he's re he reached the stage in his life. But I mean, we all do. We get to a certain age, and you do. I, I certainly do think about your mortality an awful lot, and he probably <laughs> even more so with him. I would imagine. Well, this is the first in a new cycle, hmm. and you know, obviously, it wasn't until the sort of production events of Day of the Doctor that anybody knew, particularly Stephen Moffat knew, that the cycle was going to reboot at this point, but. Then Stephen Moffat writes Name of the Doctor, Day of the Doctor and Time of the Doctor, which is a trilogy of stories in as much as, because it's not just a trilogy in the fact that they've all got similar titles, it's a trilogy in as much as those are the three stories wherein the 11th Doctor knows that his time, that his days are numbered, that his time is nearly up and doesn't know what's going to happen next. <clears throat> And so you have a doctor now who's kind of been forced to stare that in the face. And I suppose to give a really crass analogy, if you've got an illness that has every potential to be a terminal illness and you go into hospital for a course of treatment and you come out of the other end of that course of treatment and the treatment's been successful, you come out of the other end of there with a new you know, a new idea of life. Mm -hmm. But not only that, because you've come through a course of treatment that has, you know, fought off something that was potentially terminal, you don't just come out with a new idea of life, but you also come out with a new idea of death. Oh, yeah. And if Absolutely. the doctor has passed a point at which you were supposed to be dead and has come out the other side with a new idea of life, he very definitely also has another idea of le of death and in a way by addressing it in this story like that in a way Stephen Moffat is throwing that up front and centre and saying right this is what that character's got to consider possibly from now on you know it depends whether other writers and showrunners and whatever mm. decide 
to investigate that. But as the guy who actually did it, mm. the guy who actually gave the new cycle and the guy who, you know, has created the new Doctor that came out of the other side, you know, it's on Stephen Moffat's mind. Let's not forget as well that first uh, Capaldi season was, was dealing with the idea of him him being this older Doctor and becoming all, you know, all very a little <clears throat> bit fragile and a little bit unsure about things. And now he's got... And also brand new. Old, but brand new. Yeah, exactly. So with all the rock and roll stuff, he's got... Capaldi's got the... the a far wider palette now to just have fun with it because you know I well we'll talk about that later but um next week yes lee i'm kidding lee <laughs> yeah well i like the uh, guitar bit that was particularly good <laughs> on a tank um well i'll go yeah. <laughs> man what a mixed bag of stuff that was there's some bits in it that annoyed me quite a bit and other bits i absolutely adored um, okay, let's let's have them. Let's have them. Well, I think it's just a repeat of the same kind of um, tropes. Is that the word? I don't mm-hmm. know. Anyway, so things like you know, his last day, he's going to die again. You used to mention the good man goes to war. That kind of Matt Smith collage of things at the beginning that all comes together eventually near the end of the episode. Um, I'm starting to recognise this so much, and I just wanted something a little bit different from this, maybe plainer even than this immensely kind of bizarre, complex, filmic opening. But at the same time, I mean, it's going to be a second watch, like Simon says. Um, I may suddenly turn around next week and go, nah, what am I talking about? It's brilliant. All of it. Well, on that point, my feeling of that was, yes, we've seen Stephen Moffat do these openings before, where you've got a chain of locations and a chain of characters that are leading up to a certain point where it all comes together. But I thought it felt different this time. I thought it felt... It felt more... It was more coherent. No, it felt... It felt not slower, but it felt easier. Because often with the Stephen Moffat openings, it's flashbang wallop. This didn't Mm. feel like flashbang wallop. There was lots of... Here's a planet, here's a spaceship, here's whatever. Mm. But actually, the the scenes... The pacing was a bit slow. Yeah, it just felt... It it took its time when it needed to. But the only reason I say about watching it again, because I did think it was a little bit of flashback. It was like, oh, hang on, what's going on? Oh, hang on, we've turned a corner. Right, okay, let's let's run to catch up. We had the most incredible opening. I thought it was one of the best openings I've seen ever, actually. And I really enjoyed it just as an opening to anything. I mean, the yes. idea of the hand mines is brilliant. Though without the eyes, it would have been better without the eyes. But anyway, hand mines, excellent idea. Kids' nightmares. Yeah, terrifying to see the bloke being pulled under when he says, eh, it's all right, it's going to be okay. Oh, yeah, Go I had no idea what was going to happen. Was I was thinking, brilliant. is it going to blow actually, up? That actually yes. made Simon jump. It did. Yeah. Which is yeah. quite, quite fun <laughs> to watch. Um, but And then realising, because you, you, you knew who it was, didn't you? Yeah, but I'd I didn't know it was going to be Davros. Daily Bloody Mirror splashed. So it I didn't everywhere. know, and I was thinking, who's it going to be? Is it going to be? Is it going to be the master? No, we've seen a little master. Can't be him. Um, no, to what say Davros, it just completely made sense. What war? Oh, the war. It's been going on forever. So of course he's born out of war and and wanted to move it up and change. Didn't it you recognise it when you had the bi- biplane and the bow and arrow? Well, yeah, in a way, but I was thinking it was rattling in the back of my head. And I all I kept thinking about was Deadly Assassin, <laughs> not Genesis oh, really? of the Daleks, the other one. Uh, but I David Maloney. Yeah, it's great. More biplanes with lasers, please. Oh yeah, yeah, it was great. So great opening scene. 
Kid was good, the actors were fine, and Capaldi was just brilliant in that scene. Actually, Janet Coleman was brilliant, I thought. And she always is. Yeah, full stop. The In the scene between her and Missy, mm. the two of them were not just brilliant, but also in unexpected ways. Yes. There were a couple of moments when one of the characters said something and you'd expect the other one to react. And you're thinking, you know, a, a poorer writer or a poorer actor would have made a completely different choice it... and would have done something ostentatious. And they both said things and you were mm. expecting the other one to react. And all you got was a slight twitch of the eyebrow or the eyes going down yeah, to the table. Was, yeah. And it was brilliant. Yeah. It was This is the outside scene with the table, especially. Mm, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm talking I, about. I, yeah. You know, I know it's set in amber with Roger Delgado, but I think she's my favourite master. <clears throat> I tell you what, um, Delgado is just up there. But I mean, that's where the writing shines, right there. The dialogue between those two characters across that table and her just moving the plane over for a bit of shade and, and snipers on the roof. You know, bring them along because you'll feel safer and she can get rid of them all if she wants to. That's great. The actual reason why they meet then becomes a bit of an anticlimax. I actually love the kind of discussion between them both and the tension. And then it was all about the Doctor's last day and his, and his will and testament. It's like, oh, right. Yeah, but what <laughs> was great tent. about that was when she put the thing on the table and said, right, this is what gets given to his yes. best friend. Yeah, yeah. That was and Clara twist. thinks, right, that's me. And it's... Did did I hear it right when he said about the doctors when he was a little girl? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. Like, she's one, but of, one of these. Is oh, yeah, no, no, yeah. you're like it. But how many fans are going to miss that and think that he's been? No, 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 no. He's playing. Oh, they will. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, they will. <laughs> <laughs> they will. But no, they won't miss it, but they'll hate it anyway. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, We've sure... seen all the doctors. I'm we sure know that... that all the doctors oh, will know. There's going to be enough to hate in there for anybody to whinge about it, but. And it's easy to do that because there are lots of bits and pieces in it which I also think, oh, it's not quite there yet, but I'll have another. And also, also you've got the doctor coming in playing the guitar, Lee. Yeah, do you know what? When that happened, I had no problem with that because I know that Simon said, all oh, the fans are going to hate this one. Mm. But actually, we've had we've had the doctor invent the banana daiquiri and walk into a situation with a tie around his head just coming from a party. He's worn stuff around his neck. He's had a bit of a... You know, this is a, this is a new Doctor Who in the last... 10 years he's been doing all kinds of <clears throat> bizarre and stupid things like that just to get people's attention matt smith turns up in a laurel and hardy film well look let's you know, go it's just back like, to 1965 I, and you've totally got fine. william hartnell playing a silent liar in the romans exactly and patrick troughton comes in with his pipe and his recorder and <laughs> you've got john pertwee with his Venusian lullabies to the theme of god rest ye merry gentlemen <laughs> You know, it's yeah. it's not unprecedented that the Doctor has a It isn't, screen. really, but I think, um, you know, David Tennant was, uh, you know, apparently a punk, but that might have just been to show off in front of Rose. But Yeah, why magic... would it shock him from 2005 <laughs> be interested in the injury and the blockage? Exactly, Carly Murray. So having Peter That should Capaldi, have been Abba, the way it was written, originally. Having, having Capaldi come out and play, not just have music on, and come in on a tank, which was hilarious enough already, but actually play it with his own hands so the doctor can play guitar. Mm. So, oh, mm. yeah, of course he would. He probably can play all instruments. One day we'll see him play well, the his brain piano. His brain moves that fast. He's only got to stick his finger, you work out the sides. Work it out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it made perfect sense. And it was all obviously just a complete front. So we knew it was a front. So anything could happen within that chaos of that, <laughs> of that particular scene. He could have done anything. We'd have gone, yeah, okay. 
will accept it because it bit, needed to be mad. I can just say what well, musically there's what the do 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 do. Do you remember he did that? Which bit? That's the beginning of a Fugazi song. Probably. Oh, I'd be so right, chuffed if it was a Fugazi song. Probably. So he did Pretty cool. Woman, didn't he? Yeah. <clears> I don't think he was. But but, uh, did he actually play it? <laughs> that scene was the. I think he probably can. <laughs> I think he probably can. That scene was the banana daiquiri scene. Mm. And it was the opening of the Wedding of River song and all these other things. It was the Doctor being frivolous before something deadly serious was going to happen. Yeah. I still didn't quite get the reason why he was there and what that was all about. It's just to attract the attention of... No, because he knew it was his last day. So he went somewhere where he could make his last day three weeks long. Because you haven't seen the prologues, have you? There is a prologue. There's quite a lengthy pre prequel type thing which right. kind of it's not well, you might as well tell me it's less than two minutes well you might as well tell there's me there's a longer one isn't there oh is the second one longer so yeah. oh I've not seen the second one sorry oh, right. yes yeah, tell me what what's in it it's essentially the the relationship between him and the, the guy he was having the axe fight with oh really yeah oh well there you are that and, and quite when he first watch. turns up at the castle and the things he gets up to Oh, right. So was that the thing about reference. the well? Yeah, yeah. That's, which turned up in Facebook. There's a whole skit to right. do with that, yeah. 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 Ah, I shall have to seek that out. My computer wouldn't play the video this afternoon, so I mm. missed it. And it wasn't on iPlayer. Do you know, he needs to tone down the Dalek eye stalk coming out of people's heads. Please. <laughs> no, why? That's <laughs> but great. Because it doesn't make any sense anatomically or anything else. Just have a. Oh my god, how eye. much of Doctor Who makes sense anatomically? You <laughs> had a guy who had funny lines across I, his face I, who unwound and turned out to be a snake. snake. Go back to the children's nightmares, though. It's these images. It's like Scaroth. It's that thing, you know, Scaroth's face coming through the, the other <clears> face yeah, and, and that sort of thing. And that imagery, when, when he was there with, da- with Davros the boy and all the hands coming up through the sand, and you could see the Doctor, and there was that mm. sound channel. I thought it was gorgeous. And the bit with the Dalek eye stalk on the guy's head, right? You've just learned that the Doctor's having a party. And kids know what a party is, right? Because you pass the parcel and stuff. You have musical chairs and such, right? So the Doctor was just doing the Time Lord version of musical chairs. And this guy he was doing it with, who you thought, when the scene started, he was going to have this hideous fight with. And then when the Doctor comes in with a tank playing the guitar, and a guy's got this expression on his face as if to say... Oh, just give it a rest. <laughs> and you suddenly realise that this guy's the Doctor's new best mate. And then all this stuff happens, the Doctor gets taken away, and the Doctor's best mate turns round, and he's a Dalek agent. Yeah, but it was the way it was directed was just a straight, you know, it's literally just a, you know, whatever they call it when the whole body... A reveal, a straight like, reveal. Straight reveal. It wasn't a turn around to the camera. It wasn't a creepy reveal. It wasn't a... Strange, you know, like they didn't did at the beginning of Asylum Dance when it cracked through the head, but it didn't surprise me. Yeah, but it wasn't. and then it just looked a little bit naff. Well, it was just so that the kids or whoever. It almost know. felt like he, the doctor, does, does the doctor know that he's a Dalek? Part of the Dalek? No, obviously not. That's what it felt like. That oh, he, everybody knows. It didn't. Do you know what I mean? There was no surprise. There was no. No, it was. I'm interested to see if there's any little things in the dialogue to suggest that he's already dead. Because that's usually the case with those, isn't it? They're already, mm. They've already died and they start going on about. They can't remember why they're alive, sort of thing. The Dalek agents. Mm. Oh, I can't remember, yes. Sounds right. Mm. Wow. For the kids watching, 
to see a shot where the guy just walks in and he's got this Dalek eye stalk in the top and you think he's the Doctor's best mate, that's the bit where you go, oh my God. I tell you what, it's an easy cosplay, that, isn't it? Just buy a Dalek eye stalk, stick it on your head. Yeah, but you've also you got can. to dress up like a Viking, Lee. <laughs> well, you know, it could be It doesn't anybody. work without a, a Viking costume. Well. <laughs> well, I suppose so, yeah. <clears throat> what did you think of the cliffhanger to the opening then? Where, I mean, this was the oh. substance of it. Does the Doctor save the little kid? That was, you know, I mean, I kind of knew that was coming. As soon as we, he said the word, as soon as he said Davros, I thought, okay, this is going to be a decision now. Obviously, it was the second letter that he decided. Yeah, to but do I decide to save him decide, or yeah. do I not? But you know what? You said, oh, well, I think the assumption is. The assumption is he's going to save him, obviously. Because, yeah. you know, Stephen Moffat's not going to overwrite Genesis of the Daleks. Well, actually, this is where I was coming <clears> to. So... You know, you have that opening and you've got the look in his eyes and you think, well, he's got to save him because otherwise Genesis Starlet's can't have it, which is what you said. And, and there's also something because interesting. He walks away. He walks away and leaves Davos there to die. Well, possible. we don't actually see that, do we? We hear the TARDIS disappear and then he turns around and goes, what are you doing there? No, that's when the TARDIS comes back. Yeah, at the end. Yeah. So no, we don't see him walk away. Kind of we see points. him. The cliffhanger is when he's got the choice to make, isn't it? Yes, but we also do. We see Davros on the... the hand minefield and we hear the TARDIS disappear oh yeah after that's when you went yeah, you yeah. actually physically went oh it's kind of like oh you caught me out there Mr Moffat yeah. and of course at the end we must know that when he holds the Dalek ice stalk he's going to be shooting at the ground he's going to be shooting Davros is he because it's just I don't gonna know I I'll well obviously a, some people listening to this have seen this thing or <laughs> <laughs> his left hand yeah. did you feel any relief when it, when it's, it appeared obviously the original edit is that you just hear the TARDIS dematerialise, so he leaves Davros there. Did you not think? I kind of thought, yes. Well, yes, because that's Peter Capaldi. That, that's mm. his doctor, isn't it? He's a bit more, you know, I don't give a toss. Or clinical. Mm. Yeah, clinical, I suppose. Well. But he had to make the choice to come back. But, of course... But he comes back to kill him because yeah, but how does he, he knows come... that... Well, this is how... We know the TARDIS doesn't die. It's a time travel story, right? Because he, he's come back. Because the stuff with Davros we know is happening before Genesis of the Daleks, right? Mm. But the stuff with the old Davros is happening at the other end of his life. So it's a story about two time streams and how you get one time stream that goes from point A to point B. And what the Doctor has to do is somehow... What the Doctor needs to do by the end of the second episode is somehow negotiate those time streams so that he can leave point A and point B in some way intact, but at the same time save Clara and Missy. Mm. So this is City of Death and Day of the Daleks and all those other things. And this is what, you know, this is what Stephen Moffat's in his element with. He's writing a story now and he hasn't really done this before. In spite of the fact that we think he's done all these timey-wimey stories, he's never really done this one. The one where you change something and it doesn't have... Oh, Christmas Carol, actually, come to think of it. Where you change something and it doesn't have the effect you want. So you've got to then reconsider what your options are and change something else. Actually, it comes from continuity errors. The story he wrote for the seventh Doctor, for one of... The Short Trips Collections, mm -hmm. which is Stephen Moffat's first proper uh, time paradox story. 
that we've in the Doctor Who universe that we've seen actually reminds me a little bit of the thing that everybody seemed to miss in series six, which is where I think this ultimately is kind of going. You know, what I said a couple of weeks ago about. Or did I? I may I can't remember if I did. I might have said it on another podcast because I've been on Proctor Who and Forty Two to Doomsday recently. Mangrove. Right. I think <laughs> they name dropped me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I pointed out that. Well, no. Here, here, here it is. Then, when you do a time paradox story like that, if you're going to do it properly. You have to have your point A and your point B, and something in point B is not how you want it to be. So in order to change that cycle, having gone back and tried to change something and it hasn't worked, so that then it becomes like a self-fulfilling cycle, you need to break that cycle somehow by changing something else. In Series 6, I think the one thing that everybody seemed to miss, Stephen Moffat at the start of Series 6, the impossible astronaut when the Doctor dies on the beach, Stephen Moffat said in his quotes, that's the Doctor, he's actually dead. Mm. And at the end of Series 6, mm. it was a Tesselector, and everybody said, you lied, Stephen Moffat, yeah. because it was all a cheat. Mm. It's not a cheat. This is how the time paradox story works. When you first see that incident, the Doctor dies, mm. actually dies. Yeah, because you, st- you see him start to regenerate. Yeah, and then when you get to it the second time, which is when Riversong refuses to kill him, the Doctor doesn't die at all. And that's when time unravels. Mm. So then you have to go back for a third time. And on the third instance you do it, you have to set it up so that what you've got is a combination of both things that is combining those things in such a way as that it allows the flow of time to continue Mm. on the path that it was supposed to take Mm. but at the same time you've changed it just enough so that you can get the outcome that you wanted this is how time paradox stories function you fulfill the uh the elements the elements that need to be you fulfill in order that things can move on as they should but the outcome is that you. so the first time we see it the doctor actually dies and the second the third time we see it the doctor appears to die but doesn't Mm. now We've got the same thing again with Davros now. The first time we're there on that battlefield in amongst the hand mines, the Doctor leaves the Davros for dead. But Davros doesn't die. He does escape. He just walks away. Somehow he manages it, right? He had that one in a thousand chance. And he's Davros. Mm. If anybody was going to find that one in a thousand chance, it was going to be Davros, right? Mm -hmm. So we even know from as far back as 1975, that that kid was going to get out of that hand minefield mm. alive. So the first time we see it, the kid gets out, but of his own volition. The second time we see it, the cliffhanger at the end of the episode, which is when the Doctor's first gone back, we see the Doctor about to kill him. And either he does kill him or he doesn't, but whatever he does there is going to change something. And we... Fingers and ears, Lee. We saw it in the throw-forward trailer that things were changing, right? Mm. Or at least that's the impression it was giving. And then, you're all right now, Lee. And then in the third one, you know, this story obviously has to finish. More or less. I'm not saying the absolute climax of this story next week will be. But the story has to finish with you revisiting that location and that action again and finding that compromise that you had at the end of the wedding of River Song. Mm. 
you know. So somehow we're going to get to the end of this story. And when I said he's not done this before, except in A Christmas Carol, of course, the whole of series six was this. And this is it boiled down. And I said, and this is what I was about to say that I'd said on one of his other podcasts, Stephen Moffat likes to address his critics. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. He, if somebody criticises the way he's done something, if he thinks it's a valid criticism, he'll go back and revisit that idea and do it again, but better. Yeah, I do wonder about the disappointment, do you remember, with the Silent of the Daleks, Daleks. all the different Daleks, we didn't see much of them, and then all of a sudden there they are trundling around. Well, I said that in our preview episode, didn't I? Yeah, I think possibly you did. But here's Stephen, and he even admitted it himself Mm. in the preview in Doctor Who magazine. Mm. He says, last time we had every Dalek there, we didn't do it right, so I've decided to go back and do it again right, Mm. Mm. pretty much. And there they were. Yeah. And how great did that seem? And actually... It worked, didn't it? To be honest, uh, from what we've seen so far, it didn't really matter, because none of them did anything, except for... The bit where they land on Scaro and the Dalek rises up over the horizon, over the hill mm. to capture them. And it's a dead planet Dalek. That was lovely. <laughs> I think it's a shame it cut away so quickly. I'd like to have seen a couple of seconds more of that. Mm. <laughs> I may have to watch that in slow motion next time. Who porn? It mm. was, though. It was great. That was yeah. great. Yeah. And it's still in the original colours, even though those colours were made for the black and white cameras and mm. the Daleks weren't actually supposed to be those colours. Mm. That was lovely too. It just had, the, the whole episode had an air. I don't know if it was the way it was filmed or what, but it just seemed to have this space about it. Yeah. Even the, um, you know, when they're in the in the city on Scaro. It's um, possibly because, do you mean physically? Yeah, and possibly the way it was, it was shot as well. It just seemed to have a lot of... I think it had a lot of psychological space. Mm, mm. And this is perhaps mm. we're into a series of two-parters now, and this is perhaps what you get with a series of two-parters. You can, you know, I've always said about Stephen Moffat's 45-minute stories that he tells a smaller story and expands it out through character and incident, you know, character incident, so that he can do something like, you know, Asylum of the Daleks, I said this. Asylum of the Daleks is a single idea. The Doctor walks into a room and, you know, it's too late. You can't save her. Mm. And that's it. That's basically the entire story boiled down into a nutshell. The Doctor walks into a room and it's too late. And here we have Stephen Moffat saying, right, we're doing two-parters now. I can tell a bigger story. And this is perhaps why for a lot of people series six didn't work because what he did with series six was he told a two-part story except he split it into five episodes across the season Mm. and the first two parts impossible astronaut day of the moon more or less told a self-contained story at the same time but the other three episodes good man goes to war let's kill hitler and the wedding of river song didn't those three episodes didn't function without the other mm. two episodes to go with them. Mm. And it was almost like he'd split a two-parter up into five episodes and had to add in so many things. And there were certain important elements like the flesh needed to be... Uh, you know, had an episode, had a story it's rather on its own. But yeah. without telling that story, you wouldn't be able to get the... Which is what I mean. It's why it didn't seem to work for people because if he'd just told that story across the two episodes like he appears to be doing now, you you get the psychological space, but at the same time, you also get concise storytelling. Mm. And what you didn't get there 
was concise storytelling. It felt flabby. Mm-hmm. And actually, just on a slight side note, I was listening to um, the Who's He podcast at work this morning because they uploaded fairly recently some of their old episodes and just so happens that I was listening to the Let's Kill Hitler review mm. and it reminded me that at the time a lot of people said that episode doesn't exactly really serve any kind of purpose. It tells you a few things about River Song but as a story in its own right it doesn't seem to function. But actually, Let's Kill Hitler does function because what Let's Kill Hitler is, is in exactly the same way as the Zygon story was in Day of the Doctor, Let's Kill Hitler is the foreshadowing for the finale. Mm, mm. Let's Kill Hitler is analogous. River Song in Let's Kill Hitler is analogous to the Doctor's situation in The Wedding of River Song. Mm. And so what it's doing is it's kind of foreshadowing, but through character. And also jumpstart in the second half of that. Well, it does, but I think it's more important. And I think this is perhaps why it doesn't work, because it's sort of six episodes removed from the finale. And again, people... You know, if you watched all those five episodes together, I think they probably would function Mm. a lot better for people than if you watched them split up by a three-month gap in the middle and a bunch of episodes that don't really count towards the story arc. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we're supposed to be talking about The Magician's Apprentice. That's what it was called. Yeah, yeah I forgot all about that until I brought it up then. So who's the magician's apprentice? I haven't worked that out yet. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I know it's it's part and parcel of kind of keeping it a secret as to who the the focus of the story is. The magician's apprentice is Davros. The doctor turns Davros into Davros by leaving him on that place to die. And because Davros has the it's presence point. of it's mind... It's only the first part. No, this is a point, because Davros has the presence of mind to walk out of that minefield, mm. he turns into the person who will create a species that says, I don't give a damn mm. about anything I exist to kill. Mm. The magician's apprentice is Davros. The doctor made Davros. That's what this episode is saying. The only bit that doesn't add up to me, and this is me being a complete fan as opposed to somebody who goes, well, it works for the story, is that so Davros has had that sonic screwdriver all of that time. Even during Genesis of the Daleks, he still had that sonic screwdriver. So when he met the Doctor, surely something should have twigged. Well, not necessarily. It's a two-parter. I, know, I appreciate he's a different person. It's a two-parter. It's a two-parter. I thought the same. But on the one hand, time streams are going to change. And on the other hand, you know, this is probably fairly frivolous, but the sonic screwdriver doesn't look remotely like it. You know, the two sonic screwdrivers don't look remotely like one another. But, you know, in order to make that connection, he would have to remember Peter Capaldi. And patently, he doesn't. No. Uh, because this is the thing. Oh, yeah. The story yeah, is based hopefully on... Hopefully, it's part of the trap. No, no. The, the thing is, Davros says, the, the message he sends to the Doctor is, basically, I've remembered. I've remembered what you did. And now it's time to face up to what you did. So Davros, this incident that made him. Who oh, unless he, is. he just found the sonic screwdriver, maybe. <laughs> Tied oh. down the back of his chair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hang on. Is, just oh, like God, just like a remote. Was, <laughs> that's been giving me jip all this time. <laughs> well no, Davros has lived for hundreds or thousands of years, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, it's quite possible that this sonic screwdriver, he stuck it in a drawer when he got home. <laughs> and, you know, it was probably vastly important to him up until say put it this way up until he's a teenager and you know he's actually starting to 
do the things that he's only been thinking about while he's a kid as he's building up this personality that's going to tell puberty. No, I'm not talking about puberty. Sorry, I'm talking about things like college. I'm talking yeah. about things like science. Because <clears throat> that's where Davros is going. He's going to use science as a weapon. Mm. And that's it. Say he's 10 at the start. When you're 10, you can't really do anything with that. I mean, okay, I'm sort of generalising ridiculously. So, so say he puts this sonic screwdriver in a cabinet on the wall when he gets home when he's 10. By the time he's 16, when he's 16, you don't care about the things that are in the cabinet on the wall anymore, even if they're important to you. So he gets chucked in a drawer. He comes back to Scarrow at the very end of his life, goes back to revisit the places that he used to, and he finds a sonic screwdriver that he's not thought about since he was 16. I'm not saying that's the explanation. No. I'm saying... I do hope, though, I mean, because Big Finish um, did play with Davros as a younger man. I'm hoping uh, that we get to see, not necessarily the story, but get to see him as a young man at some point. It'd be quite nice to see his um, his route to where he gets to, like you've just explained. <clears throat> and maybe, you know, Julian Bleach out of makeup, just walking around before the accident happens that puts him in the chair. Or whatever it was, so it was supposed yeah, to it would be it. nice to see that. It would be quite nice sh- to just why not just bookend it? I'm not sure. Do, the accident? We... do you think? Well, I don't know. It could be. Maybe the accident yeah, happens because that of the must be a as well. Yeah, that must be a huge temptation. On the other hand, as tempting as that is, I don't think that's relevant to the story that's being told. It's not, but I'd rather see that. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather see the development of Davros. You know what I mean? If this is indeed the death of Davros, though. I think it will be because I think it'd be nice uh, if it was. I think it makes sense to. to I don't resolve think Stephen Moffat shies away from things like no. that. Mm. And besides, it's a story with time travel. A lot of people no... would say he does shy away from death. <laughs> I don't think he does that. I don't think he shies away from putting full stops on stories. No. But by the same token, he's fully aware that it's a time travel series. And that, even if you've put a full stop on something, that doesn't stop you going back to a point in time before the full stop happened. Hence River Song. Hence River Song being in the Christmas special, and hence and hence <laughs> Osgood being in the dark Zygon story, possibly, depending mm. on how they use her. I think she's going to be a Zygon, but yeah, you know, yeah. we'll have to wait and see. You're all right, Lee. Fingers out of ears. What? Let's be sure it's comes back, does it? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no, that's not where I went with that. CGI. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about how clever, for all the criticism the cyber break got, and this is changing subject completely, but how that was planted in that little scene where the Doctor found out that the Brigadier had died. Hmm. That you thought it was just like a nod to fandom, but actually it got turned into a complete device, and, and, that, was com- that, and that was tied all the way back through. That there was a, there hmm. was a character plot. I think it was, I don't think it was deliberate. You don't? No. I think he put I think he put that scene in the wedding of River Song as a nod to the actor. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. Timing and then was, I yeah. think Death in Heaven was a nod to the character. Okay. But I think he I think he very deliberately made that whole season about the brigadier in order to do that and mm. pay him full justice in spite of as many people would say you know, pulling the rug out from under himself at the end by sticking him in his side on that. But you know what I mean? But I don't think I don't think the one thing's connected to the other. I think one is for the actor and the other one's for the character. Okay. Well yeah, it makes sense. But by the same token, you know, he wouldn't have been but able felt... to do the second thing if he hadn't done the first thing. So I think it 
well, it's just coincidence. It's coincidence that he was able to use. I think it. Yeah, I think it added resonance to that scene. Yeah, and I think I've been thinking more and more about it about how symbolic it was, as opposed to, you know, he's not going to suddenly turn up, you're not going to suddenly get Cyberbrick coming to save the day because he's hanging around the Earth or anything like that. It was it was symbolic. There anyway. was speaking of something fairly similar. There was a reference to Danny at the start of this episode, mm. where uh, you know Missy, and it was very funny, but at the same time it was quite potent. Yeah. But that was a nice way to put, and this is what, you know, this is what I think Stephen Moffat does do. I think he does like putting full stops on things. And I think that line of dialogue was the full stop on Danny. Because Mm -hmm. whereas Russell T. Davis in series three, when he had Martha, couldn't help but bring Rose up in nearly every damned episode, at least for the first half of the series. This time around, I think what Stephen Moffat's done there is said, right, Okay, there are two ways this could go. We could either forget Danny and then it looked like we were being cold, or we could talk about him all the time and that would bore people. So what I'm gonna do instead is I'm gonna put this line of dialogue in, which puts a full stop on that. Yeah, and also for the people who turn around and say, Oh, it's it's so unreal, we're writing so bad because she's completely forgotten about her boyfriend now. Well exactly, that's what I mean. Yeah, no, but the great thing about that scene, going back to that scene again, aren't we, is that that was made that was said to rile her and she didn't she didn't give it any. No, exactly. So she just says, yeah, he's dead. No, she knew how he oper- she operated. Yeah. He, she. She. Mizzy. Mm. Mm. Oh, no, Clara's come a long way. Mm. Oh, well, I was thinking that, actually, when she goes into the um, the unit <clears throat> control centre. And she takes charge. She takes she charge, works yeah. And I started thinking, oh, yeah, but you're not, you know, this is unit we're talking about, and you know more than they do. And I thought, oh, actually, yeah, she probably does now. So, She's yeah. the one who goes in the TARDIS every week. yeah. Yeah. She's the one who sees all these different cultures and all these different species yeah. and how they operate. I thought, you know, when, when I saw Kate again, let's be Stuart, I, I'm getting increasingly bored with the character because there's, there's, she doesn't do anything. And, you know, the actress is great, but at the same time, it's a bit weak. She's not given much to play with. And in the old series, obviously, the brig would turn up and with his cane and say a few words and lines, and then the doctor would kind of you know, say, pass me that thing and I'll stir my tea. It becomes kind of useless, but a bit of a comedy side for character. Kate doesn't seem to be, you know, what's, the, what's her point? I mean, basically... She's a facilitator. Yeah. Essentially. This but is the thing. She's a nice mm. Yvonne Hartman. Yeah, but the woman but in the she's... chair with the glasses, I don't know the actress. She was name. funny. She yeah. was really good. I thought she was a solid actress and it just... You know, that, those are the types of people that I'd rather have in the future mm. in Doctor Who. Just people that feel natural. She was quite funny, quite natural, good lines, well delivered. And she had more power. She, I felt like she had more kind of gravitas and power in her acting ability and in the character than uh, Kate did. Anyway. Kate is the Paternoster gang in that... She's a character that you can bring in to facilitate certain things happening, like Clara finding Missy, but who doesn't actually have any power to influence the plot because Mm. when the series is Doctor Who and it's about the Doctor and the Companion, you can't, these characters that you bring in can't influence the plot too much, otherwise you're taken away from those main characters. But when do we see her first? Kate. Yeah, which episode was it? Was it Power... Th- not Power 3. Which one was it? Yeah, it was Power, Power 3. 3. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, she walks into the... Si- she owns the screen. She owns the situation. 
Um, you know, she knows what she's talking about. You totally trust her. She's on the ball. And then the next time we see her in Dare the Doctor, she's losing a bit of that kind of power. She, it looks like she's powerful, but actually it's that Martha problem where Martha can't be a soldier because it's just, I don't think... It doesn't feel right. Jenna, uh, Jenna. Um, Freeman hasn't got the acting chops to pull it off, or maybe it's not written very well. <clears throat> and it's the same with, with Kate. Anyway, that's just one of the things that kind of bugged me a bit. I just need her to, you know... Balls up. Balls up. Pick up a gun. I said that, apart from a gun, that's no different to the Brigadier, really, is it? I mean, the Brigadier would no. turn up and shoot people and get told off for it, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, but he had... Probably the same thing. He would march in and, and kind of own his troops, though, wouldn't he? Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. They jumped to it. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, though, he was a military head of the operation, where she's supposed to be a science officer head of yeah, the operation. Yeah, I think we give it Fair time. We give it time and she'll shine. I know what you're saying, though. I... Pardon? I say give her, give it time and she'll shine. Okay. <laughs> I thought she shone, anyway. But... Oh, no, no, she does. She does. God, brilliant actress. Oh, brilliant but, actress. But I'm just saying, give, give her the opportunity in the situation in the story and she'll probably prove her worth hopefully i said two weeks three weeks ago whenever it was we did the preview episode no i was doing it with al wasn't i i said i figure that in some ways i mean this is not a spoiler because i don't know but in some ways i think episode 12 is going to be a sequel to episode one so i'd be and and okay i think it is because Here's a big question for you. I said at the start of this episode of the podcast, this is a story about an old man gathering his nearest and dearest, you know, in inverted commas, around him at the end of his life. So what's Missy doing there? What is mm. Missy's purpose yeah. in this story? Yeah, yeah. she's a bit of a... I, my suspicion is, and this is speculation, not spoiler, my suspicion is that Missy probably will get to the end of this story without having fulfilled... A story function, as opposed to a plot function. She might fulfil plot functions, but I don't think she'll fulfil a story function. And you know, you remember the way I define this? Plot's what happens, story is why. You know, story is the impact upon the characters. I don't think... It feels to me like you're going to get to the end of the story and Missy's going to have felt like a side character in it. And I think the reason why is because you're going to get to the end of the series, that's going to be where Missy comes back and comes into her own, and you... With in at the end of episode twelve, we'll understand what she was doing there in episode one. That's what it felt like. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested could, to know how you, she's getting around. You could almost vortex manipulate. Oh well, yeah, no, I'm just. Yeah. Um, yeah, is it as simple as that? Has she got a TARDIS? Well, you hidden could, away somewhere, yeah, or you could or almost. They... You could almost say that if you know it's Moffat, you could say that Missy's playing a game again. The entire yeah. thing is created by her again somehow because I mean. Look at the uh, the Matrix thing, Richard, of Death in Heaven. You know, we're all going, hey, how does this happen? Oh, all the way through the series. How, how come they're still alive? But they're dead. Blah, blah, blah. We're all kind of questioning it. And I think you got it in the NJR that it's part of the Matrix, uh, you know, data banks or whatever. That's the only way it could happen. But again, she's just flim-flamming around. She's brilliant. But why is she there? Yeah, She also talks like a stalker, did not she? But she's she's, 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 she's in amongst, she's in amongst all of the storylines. She's in amongst all of the chaos, and she's just kind of like flouncing about. And you know how powerful she is. We've seen her power. She can control planes. She can kill people, you know, with a whim. So why is she in there? 
in any shape or form. And ostensibly, standing next to go, let's go and see the Daleks. You know, and it's to find my best friend. But actually, that doesn't tell a story. That's just an action. And somehow you've got to make that action part of a story. If that action is part of a story. Or have you just put the character in there as not some not a red herring or a misdirection. But you know what I mean? You've put the character in there in some ways irrelevant to the story. So that when she comes back at the end of the series, which I have to assume is going to happen. Then all of a sudden, you know, light bulbs will blink over people's heads and stuff like that. Give her enough to do next week that it doesn't look like you've put her in there for no apparent reason. Mm. But then give her something to do in episode 12 that makes the audience sit up and say, right. I feel that's the way it's got to go. Mm. Well, we saw them both exterminated at the end. And the the TARDIS was exterminated too, right? Yeah, well, yeah. In front of our very eyes. We, well, we didn't actually see... I suppose we didn't actually see that the TARDIS... But, I mean, that was the impression we certainly got. I hope it's Daleks being wily. No, no, no. I think it's time. I think the Doctor goes yeah. back and changes something that causes the Daleks not to do that. Okay. I think they really are dead. I think Missy and the TARDIS and Clara really are dead. And I think next week the Doctor's going to change something. Like I said in Wedding of River Song, you know, in The Impossible Astronaut, I think the Doctor did die, and in The Wedding of River Song, they'd changed enough in that timeline to cause events to take the same path, but with a slight diversion that left him alone. Sorry, I'm being really thick here. Since when do people disappear when they're exterminated? Because they never used to. Maximum extermination. Oh, okay. I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, yeah, it doesn't it's really the same matter. old matter transporter thing, isn't it? You immediately think that's what's happened. No, I don't think it is. Why? Because you saw the skeletons? No, I don't think it is, because I don't think that's the story that's being told. Okay. I think the story that's being told is, they're dead, he has to change something to make events happen in a way that causes them not to die. Um. So the scene where they die, and then the scene at the end where he comes back and says exterminate with the master in front of him, the little master. Davros. Sorry, did I say little master? Yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah. want to see the little master. Uh, the little Davros, rather, I'm tired. Young Davros. <laughs> Young Davros, thanks. Um, that, uh, we, we didn't see his TARDIS, did we, in the background? That's a preview of next episode you're talking about. No, no, no he's talking about the cliffhanger. The cliffhanger. Oh, right. Where okay. the Doctor comes back to oh, kill yes, the yes, young yes, Doctor. Yes, yes. exterminate, but... Yeah. Um, no, we don't see the TARDIS in We shot. don't see, so he... I don't think. Are we assuming that that is the same Doctor that was sitting in Davros' chamber two minutes beforehand, or is that the Doctor that came back at the end of when he exactly, first left Yeah, him? was that the event? Yeah, which one was the event that caused all the shit? Mm. Well, that's an interesting point, yeah. It could be the second event that causes the stuff to happen, mm. and the first event that we see is the event that we're left with. That might be it, because, you know, to leave Davros to walk out of that field himself and cause Davros to... Because it's that, you know, in storytelling... Because in life, things don't happen that simply. You know, lots and lots of things go to make a person. But in storytelling you know as well as I do, you have to give a specific event that causes a change in a person's character that makes them turn into the person they're going to be. And evidently, walking out of that 
field of hand mines. Is that what it was called? Hand mines, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Walking out of that field of hand mines with his one in a thousand chance and still being alive is what turns Davros into Davros. So maybe you're right. Maybe that first one that we see where the Doctor leaves him to walk out of his own volition is the one that we'll end up with. I've always said about Stephen Moffat, it gives you the answer before he poses a question. Mm -hmm. And perhaps there he is again, giving you the resolution to the story right at the very start of it. Changing the subject slightly, the bit with the, the planes hanging in the air, I absolutely adored that. But it did make me think of a uh, There Might Be Giants song. Have you ever heard Shoehorns Shoe with Teeth by There Might Be Giants? <laughs> and there's a brilliant line in it about... It's on their first album, isn't it? Might be. It's quite an early track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, toured the world in a heavy metal band, but they run out of gas. The plane can never land. Uh, <laughs> it made me think of that. I think it might be their second album, actually. Mm. The one with Anna Ang on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's about the right era. Yeah. That's such a beautiful song. Mm. <clears throat> anyway, slight digression. Yeah. Oh, lots to like, lots to like. I mean, the, the actual, you know, when she looks out the window and sees the plane frozen in the air, I mean, I don't know about you, but I just thought that's brilliant, beautiful concept, simple. And it's like, yeah, if you're going to get somebody's attention, Time Lord's attention. Maybe and she so. says, you know, there's nothing I could have done with them. I've just stopped them from moving. <laughs> you know, I couldn't have made them drop out of the sky or blow up or anything. I've just stopped them. But that's what I also like about the Master and Missy, is that that character will do the most outrageous thing you know, the most huge and massive thing. And it's such a, a stupid thing as well. So like, you know, changing his face, making everybody look like him around the world. For what reason? <laughs> Just because it's a stupid thing to do, because he can do it, you know. And I, I'd like that. That is a stupid story. So. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? With stuff. Missy this time, some of the criticisms before were that Missy was just too mad, too John Sim in a woman's body again. And she was very toned down in mm. those early mm. scenes. But then let it all hang out again once they got to Essex in 11.38. So you had a bit of each there. But she is so good. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Perfect. It's just Perfect the casting. casting is... Well, just proving that point, isn't it? You okay. want her to stay in the TARDIS, don't you? Yeah. You want it to be her and Jenna Coleman and Peter Capaldi because the three of them together have extraordinary chemistry mm, mm. it is just glorious find a way for the master to stay on the TARDIS yeah but also have that um, Turlow Street going you've got to make sure that, uh, that oh stays. absolutely right yeah. yeah I did predict I don't know back before we even saw Series 8 I think that you know, once we'd worked out that it was no so it must have been while we were watching the last story and I'm sure I said it on the podcast the best way to do the Gallifrey arc would be to have Missy as a companion on the TARDIS for a few episodes. <coughs> and that would have been just so good. <laughs> but I don't think it's going to happen, certainly not this year. Who knows what might happen in the future. She seems too trigger-happy, doesn't she? There's only a certain amount of time she can last before she's got to annihilate something. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's true. But, you know... It, wouldn't that make for a great dynamic? Mm, mm. Extraordinary. Is there anything significant we've missed, or should we give it a score? Oh, that's tricky, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, everybody's looking thoughtful. So I'm going to go for Lee first, because he looks 
more thoughtful, so I'm going to punish him. Yeah, well, these are two-parters, so in a way... Yeah, yeah, you can't... It's difficult to be objective when you've only seen half a story, but uh, let's score this episode on how much you enjoyed this episode. Okay, how much I enjoyed the episode? All right, well, I think... I think eight, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Shimon. We can't do half points, can we? No, it has to be integers. I want to give it 7.5. That's what I want to give it. (laughs) Oh, we're not allowed. Well, At this point in time, I need to watch it again. I don't feel I absorbed it all, so I'm going to give it a seven. Okay. Asylum of the Daleks, that was. Seven, wasn't it? We gave it. Possibly. Similar kind of rating. I think it's way better than Asylum of the Daleks. Yeah. I really liked Asylum of the Daleks, but I thought Asylum of the Daleks was problematic in areas that I don't think this was. I think yeah. we as a podcast were not as overwhelmed with it as... No, Series 7 was, especially the second half of Series 7, was a little underwhelming. Mm. And I think that went across all eight episodes. Even the name of the doc, it was like, almost, everything in that second half and... You know, Asylum of the Daleks to kick it off because it didn't really seem to kick into gear till Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, did it? No. But all those episodes with Clara in just felt slightly like he hadn't put the oven up high enough. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was like the pie was cooked, but it didn't come out steaming hot and it didn't come out with the it juices was, flowing the way you like bottom. it. Yeah, you know what I mean? It was. And it, it, you know, it was gluten free. Well, put it this way: in series seven B, our favourite episode, I think, as a podcast, was the Crimson Horror, and you could never have predicted that at no, the start of series seven B. And even the name of the Doctor, the great ideas in the name of the Doctor, but it just felt a bit disjointed, and it felt like not everybody was quite on the same page with it. I loved it. it no, it was great, but it felt slightly sloppy. Whereas to me, this didn't feel remotely sloppy. This no. felt like... Yeah. I mean, the thing is, when you have a two-parter, it's 90 minutes we're getting, aren't we? Essentially for a story. Yeah, basically. Which is a film. Yeah. So when he goes to write his two-parters, is he writing it like a two-parter, like the old series? You know, how, yeah. How's he thinking? Is he know. writing like his two-parts? You know, is he going to do something in the first episode and then the tone changes and the story goes somewhere else in the second? But essentially you're writing the film. So why don't you just... Do a film? No, 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 because with a, with a with a climax in the middle. No, because for the three of us here, we will watch those two episodes at some point in the future, back to back, right? Because mm-hmm. we're fans, and that's what we do. But of the eight million people who are watching, seven hundred no seven million nine hundred ninety thousand won't, and they've got six hours and. Six hours, six days and 23 and a quarter hours before they see the next one. And, you know, Stephen Moffat's theory is if you've passed nearly seven days between the episodes, it has to feel like the story's moved on with you. And this ties in with what I have always said about things like Cyberman continuity in a classic series. It doesn't make any sense because each time you see the Cybermen, it's somewhere else in sort of history. Uh, you know, you might see a story set 5,000 years in the future and then another one half a year later set 200 years in the future and yet the Cybermen have developed from one story to the next. And that's because in the viewer's mind, 
they're not concerned with one being set 5,000 years and the other one being set 200 years. They're concerned with the fact that they saw one six months ago and they're seeing this one now. So the Cyberman develops between those two stories, even though it doesn't actually hold any logic in the continuity of the creatures. And it's the same, basically, it's the same theory that governs this. Stephen Moffat is saying, okay, so the next episode might start the minute this episode finishes, but in viewers' minds... Seven days have passed. So let's use that as a tool in our storytelling. Mm. So for 7,990,000 people, you, that's what you're taking into account. And I think we, we are we getting are, that. We live in an age where we've got things like Game of Thrones, Deadwood, all these kind of HBO series that, that starts Daredevil, whatever. They all start quite slowly and you can pick them up. I mean, I know we're talking about 12 episodes of all one thing not going anywhere through te- te- time and space but i'm surprised that Stephen Moffat hasn't doesn't do, it. doesn't do that we're still because kind of different. jumping all over the place and it's all quite mad it's a different audience i don't know if it is it is a different audience people who box it? set aren't eight-year-old kids the situation is the no, but isn't my, it, my son's respects. 14 That's... or 15 and he's watching daredevil and all this sort of stuff yeah but you said it yourself an arrow. they're hbo series yeah. You come to different things with different expectations. He tried in series six to do a box set series and look where that got him. The people it should have appealed to, the ones who will go out and buy the box set mm. and watch it as a box set or moan like hell about it. Be interesting that if this did turn if we had a film at any point in the future, how that would come about and you know, how that would look and feel on the screen. I mean, obviously, we have 90 minutes or two hours sitting in a cinema seat watching from start to finish. But would it be treated the same? Because that felt quite cinematic. Mm. Really. But this felt... Doctor, this. Yeah, yeah. The Doctor did, but this felt even more cinematic. Mm. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah you, so the direction was gorgeous. We can compare that to New Earth as a first mm. <laughs> episode or whatever. It's just not even in the same Light league. is away, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's away. We were talking about just before the podcast, we were saying about... I wasn't going to say this on the podcast because it's going to upset people, but when people say to me the classic series is so much better than the new series, and you just think, well, well there's no argument really because they're two different things. Yeah, the same. They, they are, but they, you know, the new one is an evolution. Yeah, of course it is. You know, there's no point in hating one. I'm saying it doesn't make bad choices, but I don't really get no, that. I don't get that either. Mm. Give it, it a go. It's sci-fi and it's Doctor Who. Yeah, it's, hard, it's a different format. It's just yeah. different. It's but... got the guy from Thick of It in it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they don't, yeah. Some people look at things like survival and don't appreciate that it's noticeably different from an unearthly child. Yeah, it's just silly. <laughs> and survival's exactly halfway between an unearthly child and this now, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, one last thing, one tiny little thing. I haven't scored it yet, but I will do in a second. The bit where they walk out of the building that they think is a spaceship. Mm. And as they walk out into the atmosphere, their perception filter, whatever they call it this time, adjusts. So much imagination goes into such a tiny little thing. The bit where they're walking around in the star field was just astonishing, really. Well, I was thinking about the amount of ideas. Mm. <clears throat> the hands. The planes hanging in the air. Yeah, there's loads of ideas. The invisible planet. Some people are going to say about the hands, oh, hand mine. That's just a play on the word landmine, and it's just silly and frivolous and stupid. Yeah, but I'm I'm looking forward to the hand grenades. They're actually hands that you throw at people. 
Do not throw hands at me. <laughs> oh, regardless of the hands, the fact that you suck them down into the earth, I just thought it was amazing. And as you say, oh, I, I, ju- I physically jumped and I haven't done that in Doctor Who. Yeah, if you have time. a silly and a frivolous idea mm. and you're going to use it, use it well. And he did. Mm. Yeah. A little bit um, Pan's Labyrinth, that one. Right, I think it should be obvious that I'm going to give it a nine. Right. Oh, okay. No, I thought it was... Well, if it goes where I think it's going to go now, and I think the second episode is going to be a bit different from the first one in terms of the tone of it, because I think it's going to be doing a different thing. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, Can I just ask, Lee, you haven't really said about... The fact that it was Davros. You didn't know it was going to be Davros. No. You had no idea. Oh, th- I was going to swear then. Thank Gould for me and my spoiler-free year. I have absolutely... Do you know, you won't believe this, but I didn't know the Daleks were in this at all until uh, Nicholas Pegg stuck it up on Facebook. Um. Said, oh, I'm in that one. I was like, thanks. <laughs> but um, obviously, you know, it's been thrown around everywhere for, for trying to promote the series. But I've done really well, and it was only three days before, or whatever it was, mm. that I knew the Daleks were in it. Um, somebody else put up a picture of, uh, of of Capaldi. It was the prologue, which is a little picture of him with a medieval well. Mm. I said, ah, oh, you know, another one. And they said, well, you know, to be fair, you're not going to get away. And I said, yeah, no, I know. But I've been living in a world where all I know is that the Doctor's hair's got bigger. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> that is it. That's all I know. So I think I've done rather well. So Davros was just... Oh, it's great. It's like being a kid again. It's like, I didn't know that was going to happen. I'd heard things about Davros and I heard about him being a young boy, but I didn't know Julian Bleach was going to be back. And we were on Khan as well. Can we just say, none of us say how good Julian Bleach was again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he is Davros. He played Davros with half his head lying down, you know, towards his keyboard with his hand across his face. With his hand holding his head up. You should never act with your hand across your face. He pulled it off so yeah, yeah. Mm. This is why I'd like mm. to see him as as a as a young man. As a with younger Davros, yeah. That'd be great. Weird very, right very mature episode, I have to say. And uh and little... immature. Rock guitar. Rock guitar. Yeah, was... yeah, yeah. And then joke about the well, dog, he... dog's unmentionable. Yeah. I bet I bet and... you're expecting the synth to come out. <laughs> well in this current regime of Doctor Who, they can throw the serious stuff and the silly stuff in together and not make it feel any different. Oh the dog's bollocks joke. Mm. <laughs> right, so we will be a day later yeah. next week because probably we'll be a day later next week because I've got a thing on Saturday which might keep me away. But but um, until then, oh oh oh, you'll go on. Oh no, no, we'll say it next week. It's fine. Keep them in suspense. Oh okay. Right, until then, I was Jr. I was Lee. And I was Simon. Oh.